Hi, I'm John Wells, and thanks for joining us for this episode on the occasion of the one-year celebration of data.gov.au. And in this special episode, we're quite pleased to have with us, uh, joining us from London, uh, Professor Sir Nigel Shadbolt, who is well known for a wide range of work, but also is co-founder with Sir Tim Berners-Lee of the Open Data Institute. Uh, we'll also be joined by Jacques Mayeux, the uh, CAO of Elections Canada, and Richard Pietro uh, of the Open Government Tour. But here in uh, Australia's capital, Canberra, to recognise uh, this milestone for data.gov.au is Aus the Australian Government Chief Technology Officer, John Sheridan. Hi, John. Hi, how are you going? And Pia War, uh, the Director of Gov 2.0 uh, for the Australian Government. So, John, let's, let me jump in with you. Uh, open data, where are we at on the, the open data journey for, from, from the big picture, Australia's big picture point of view? How far along are we? Well, John, I'd first start by saying, of course, that this is the one-year anniversary of our refreshed data.gov.au. Okay. So it's something of a rebirth that we're celebrating, not the conception, if you like. Yeah, yeah. It's, um, a, it's a reboot. It, it, yeah. it is indeed. I don't go as far as thinking of it as data.gov.au 2.0, because I think that's a little overused. But certainly we've, we've, in the last year, come a long way on this journey, I think, to towards getting an improved way of presenting government data, public sector information, to people in an open way. The, um, the, the journey's a very interesting one, I think, because it's been marked by what I would see, based on my military background, as a series of false crests. Um, <laughs> when we first did the work um, and started this, it was enough for people that we published information online in a way that we hadn't done before. And that was certainly an improvement. Um, but not all of that information was, da that data was in easily readable formats or standard formats or those sorts of uh, arrangements. Uh, and so then we, we, were, we were asked and we moved towards the notion of providing common formats, machine-readable formats like Excel or, or those things. Then, as you, having sort of topped that crest, all of a sudden there was another one in front of us that said provide CSVs or more standard non-proprietary formats. So we've done some work in doing that. Just got our heads up and it was provide some APIs so we could get people using the data in a much more programmatical sense. Um, having got quite high up in the clouds now, we've been asked, well, what about some visualisation tools? Should we have geospatial information included as well? So, so what you're hearing is not so much the complaints, but the reality of a bureaucrat in saying sometimes people just aren't satisfied. Um, <laughs> that, 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 that surprises me. I, I, know, I know you'd be surprised about that. But we're certainly moving, and, and very happily, along this journey. The government's view, of course, is that open data can be a real driver of economic value. Mm. And our search is to get closer and closer towards that goal of providing economic value. We've got data sets now that we know are being used for useful purposes, such in energy ratings for appliances, uh, other related sort of data that does actually start to drive those eco that economic value target. And that's really where we're trying to concentrate our work. Um, it's, it's a long journey. It's going to continue. We've had a sevenfold increase in data sets, good data sets, 
on data.gov.au in the last year, and obviously we, we're delighted with that improvement. But there is, of course, a fair way to go in terms of releasing that sort of information. Um, I, I don't mind that we've got the driver of people wanting more information to get to, to provide more, but certainly um, we've come a very long way, and I'm, I'm certainly pleased with our efforts in that regard. Well, as a, as a milestone, I've got to ask you, uh, in this uh, one-year reboot period, um, it's clearly been eventful. What, what, what would you uh, highlight as possibly one of the bigger challenges for you during that period? But let's, let's keep it positive and say what's also been one of, do you think, one of the biggest wins? Uh, so I think let's start with the win. This, this quite, perhaps not quite exponential increase in data, but getting getting a sevenfold increase over over that twelve month period has been very good. I think also the ability to start to drive um, broader federation amongst data sources. Um, we're working towards that with the um, other jurisdictions, the states and territories, with um, other data sets where we're providing access through data.gov in the way we had envisaged it would be, not necessarily as the sole repository of, of open data from government, but certainly as the, the doorway, the portal to that, that information if we're not storing it ourselves. So, so those things have been, um, been improved. But just as the, you know, this series of false crests has presented itself to us, um, I think our steadily increasing altitude is what's pleasing about it, not necessarily how far we've gone. You're a frustrated pilot, aren't you? I, I, <laughs> no, I, I, I'm I, definitely I, not a pilot. I'm a retired <laughs> infantryman. <laughs> so let me come back to some uh, of what you were saying there about the seven folds in, in a moment. I'd like to bring in uh, now Pia War, uh, who, of course, is Director of Gov 2.0 for the Australian Government and also in charge of data.gov.eu. Pia, um, John said it's been an eventful year, but you've just come away from a big event, uh, GovHack, in 11 cities across Australia. Um, congratulations on 11 cities. Give us open data in Australia by the numbers. <laughs> All right. Um, so we had, um, so for GovPack, which I do in my spare time, the, you know, in my work time, I actually work directly for John. Um, we That's had 11, what she says. Uh, yeah, yeah. Usually. <laughs> he, he tries to tell me what to do. It's a good thing. Um, we had 11 cities. We had over uh, 1,300 people register. Uh, yep. We had 200 projects over 46 hours contributed to the competition. Um, the national competition had about $70,000 worth of prize funding and there was a every local city also had their own local competitions. But what we really tried to do was to harness, um, I guess, a sense of growing community. Um, there were kind of three goals for it. The first one was making innovation meaningful, showing what could happen when you get a cross-disciplinary group of, you know, uh, motivated, excited geeks into, into a room, uh, you know, across the country. Um, we wanted to encourage and support governments to open more data. We had federal, state and local governments across the country engaged and you know, opening up hundreds and hundreds of more data sets in the lead up to the event, uh, which is wonderful and quality data. And, um, but it's also importantly a, a really good opportunity to grow the tech community and to showcase the, the clever and creative things we can do, you know, that our geeks can do in Australia, which is really cool. Um, do, do you mind if I also go back to a couple of the wins? as well, some exercise. Sure. Um, my, one of my personal uh, things that I'm so excited about with Data.gov.au was yeah. actually, weirdly enough, the, the opening up the budget data. So, I mean, we, the Australian government is, is wonderful in terms of the um, publishing of budget information, but publishing data from our budget, this is the first year we've ever done that. 
and it was a, a really wonderful win, and there's been a lot of those kind of case studies happening where agencies are realizing the benefits to them in publishing data, not just the, the public benefits and economic benefits as well. And so agencies are now starting to come to us and wanting to publish lots of new data, in, whereas in the past it used to be us trying to drag it out of them. So that's been a very exciting turnaround and a bit of a tipping point for open data in Australia. That's what, what, I, what I'd like to do, uh, Pia, is, is introduce Professor Sir Nigel Shadbolt. Professor, we spoke uh, last about 18 months ago when uh, you were just about to open uh, the Open Data Institute offices near Silicon Roundabout uh, in London. Thanks for joining us. Pleasure. Uh, Nigel, what have you found during this 18-month period have been the big challenges uh, for the Institute and its work? What's the road been like so far? Well, the whole premise of the Open Data Institute is that uh, uh, it's one thing to, um, as, as, as some of your uh, panelists have said today, uh, um, supply the data. You know, that's one crest of the hill uh, to put the data out there. But the real challenge is to uh, generate a vibrant demand for the data, that it should be used uh, widely and uh, uh, to create value, economic value, social value, environmental value. These different uh, um, um, requirements around the the, uh, the 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 demand side uh, is what the Open Data Institute's been been dealing with this past uh, eighteen months or so, and so we've done a number of things. We have a, a number of startup companies who are uh, who were incubating and mentoring inside the institute. Uh, we've just graduated our first ten, have another six in place, and there the premise is these companies are trying to build businesses on the exploitation of open data assets. Another challenge is to bring that same message to established corporates, uh, to, to big companies who um, are sometimes only barely aware of what open data assets are out there and how that might benefit them. And of course, ultimately to begin to persuade them that there may be more in their own data, more value by making it open for open innovation than simply uh, sitting on it. And that cultural shift is every bit as challenging as the one we're facing as we try and get governments to exploit and use publicly held data. Nigel, your uh, institute was uh, developed with the help of UK Government Technology Strategy Board funding. Can I just uh, check in for the, for the benefit of our listeners, um, the open data assets you're talking about? To, to what extent are they primarily uh, public sector assets and to what extent are they private? At this point, they're primarily uh, public sector assets. So we wanted to demonstrate the demand that was available and possible that could be uh, uh, nurtured for the uh, data that was sitting on data.gov.uk. Um, but as I say, part of the uh, developing mission is to explain to companies that their own assets could well be uh, much more valuable uh, as open data. But primarily, we've started with open data uh, from the public sector. And that's also meant I shouldn't sort of give a sense that everything is straightforward on the supply side. Far from it. We're still working hard with government agencies to explain as, as John, John Sheridan was saying and Pierre was saying, that, that, that we've got a whole uh, uh, large amount of work still to do to get um, um, high quality formats used, uh, a continuity of supply. Uh, companies won't use this data to build a business unless they are very confident the quality and security of that data flow will mm. continue. Could I jump in and ask you then, um, what's been the Institute's experience and what are you noticing as generally in the UK as a trend around uh, encouraging government agencies to make open data business as usual? 
So on the supply side, how, how do you get them thinking about this as business as usual? Well, in some sense, the, the policy says that's how the dial should be set. Um, there is that presumption. But uh, a, a policy is one thing. Behaviour, as you imply, is another. Um, we, it's variable, in truth. Uh, we have got some departments who, one has to say, in the early days were uh, somewhat reluctant or didn't quite see the point, who are amongst our best advocates. Um, the Department for Transport in the UK uh, really has been pushing the release of a whole range of transport-related data, some of which, um, in the way in which we actually uh, um, uh, have some of our uh, transport um, um, provided by private sector suppliers, of course, um, some of the data went with those uh, franchises, uh, and we've been fighting very hard to get that back. So if you're going to contract a public service out, make sure you don't contract the data out with it. Um, otherwise, you're fighting to get timetable data or fares data from, uh, from train and uh, bus operators. That whole area has become really very, very um, uh, well supported and, and really understanding of the advantages of the, of, of the, open, data, the open data movement. In other areas, uh, it's still work in progress. Although, again, yesterday, just yesterday, one of our trading funds, and th this is this kind of uh, body of government agencies in the UK who were set up with a requirement to generate a dividend to their shareholders. So they, they, they were set up to sell data. We've had real challenges in that space because we've had to try and, and, and take them on a journey which says, look, this data, in a sense, still has greater economic value made openly available. And so our company's house, uh, which is our, uh, the, the trading body that holds all the company registrations in the UK, has now made all of its digital data available as open data, every scrap of company registration data. And I think that's, that, that shows there's a whole spectrum still of of those who get it and are really seeing their business transformed by it, and those who are who are still reluctant, and others who basically feel that we're trying to put them out of business. Yeah, I'd I'd like to uh, turn to Pia here, uh, Nigel. H how does that? How does Sir Nigel's experience or perspective in the UK compare with Australia's? From how you see the landscape, Pia. Um, I guess the experience of um, agencies sort of being on a journey, and each agency has its own journey, um, is, is very common um, and, and very similar. And what we're finding is that, that by we're sort of providing a bit of an aspirational model in some ways because getting onto the bandwagon or getting onto the journey is the first step. But by constantly making it more valuable to agencies to publish data in a higher quality format, um, by giving them that incentive, that aspiration, uh, they, want to, they want to do stuff better. So we've had a few agencies say to us, we can give you 20,000 data sets to link on DataGovRU or to add to DataGovRU. But when we look closely, you know, 90% of them weren't data sets. They were you know, a scan of a file of a, of a textbook from the 1970s, which is very interesting, but not data. So we say, well, no, we'll only take the data. And then they say, oh, well, what about this thing? This is, this is data. Okay, we'll fix your metadata so that we know that it's data. So by constantly putting, um, you know, encouraging agencies to improve the quality, we're um, supporting them while they're learning and while they're maturing um, their understanding what open data means and what machine readable means as opposed to reports or information, um, but, and providing them an extra um, incentive when they do so. So if they have data on DataGovRU, which is machine readable spatial data, it will automatically turn up on the national map, which is a beautiful newly released data visual, you know, visualization map um, of the um, national government, which 
And so they, now they want to have spatial information on data.gov.au so that it can be visualised. So it just gives them more motivation and more incentive to make their data more available uh, when, they, when they get some benefits to them as well. Well, now, picking up on making data available, I'd, I'd like to bring into the conversation uh, our Canadian uh, guests. Commencing with Richard Pietro. Richard was the co-founder uh, in Canada of Citizen Bridge, and Richard is the host of a, a fascinating project at the moment called the Open Government Tour. Uh, Richard is, has decided to jump on a motorbike and ride 20,000 kilometres across Canada and back, linking 18 cities across the country. And in each of the 18 cities, there are going to be uh, teams holding uh, civic meetings, local government, citizen groups, etc. Uh, Richard, what prompted you to do this? Because open data is freaking awesome. And more, <laughs> and more people need to know it. Um, unfortunately, the conversation around open data, open gov, may, it's, it's too technical. It's, it, it seems like civic engagement. It's not particularly sexy. And I'm just a waiter at a, at a restaurant locally. And I, I can't believe more people don't know about this. So I just decided... I'm trying to do what I need to do as a citizen to bring attention to what open government and open data can bring in terms of creating a much more uh, open, engaging, and collaborative government. So, Richard, uh, speaking from that citizen's perspective, at the end of 20,000 uh, kilometres, what do you expect might be some possible shifts in the open data space in Canada? Well, my hope is to bring in a few more voices and eyes into the space. And more importantly, and I think this was mentioned by Pia, is bringing that element of creativity and innovation. Because one of the things I like to say about open data, and open data sets in particular, is that they're like Lego blocks. And you can build anything with Lego blocks. And the only thing that's stopping you is the type of Lego block that you have, which is the type of data set, and your own imagination. And the more people are, are, are part of this conversation, then the more things can be created. And that's what I'm hoping will happen with the tour. So I'm hoping from the tour that John funds me to do an Australian tour on my motorbikes. <laughs> I was much more impressed in the introductions when I thought it was a push bike tour. <laughs> now I know it's quite soft. I'm not so impressed. Oh, soft. Oh. Actually, I, I've suggested on Twitter that uh, for Australia, it should be circumnavigating the uh, the continent by boat, not a motorcycle. So, so um, I'd also like to introduce uh, Jacques Mayeur. Uh, Jacques is the CIO of Elections Canada in Ottawa, and also importantly, is hosting the Open Government Tour closing event, of course, in the national capital, uh, when Richard probably by that point will not be able to walk again. Jacques, welcome. <laughs> Thanks. Um, I just want to mention, you know, Richard's riding his bike, but he's pounding a lot of pavement in each of the cities he hits, I can tell you. <laughs> I, I, I can imagine. Jacques, let me ask you, from your perspective uh, in the work you do uh, from a, a federal, in, in the federal landscape, but looking across the country, what do you see as the, the challenges uh, and the opportunities for the open data movement across jurisdictions, federal, provincial, local? Well, the, you know, there, there is still... Um, a lot of pressures from the um, from the outside in at every level of government, um, from you know active actively engaged citizens like Richard, to um, to do more, um, not just do more open data, but to do open data right. 
And from my perspective, I can tell you too that what I see inside the governments, um, federally, provincially, and municipally, is that there's a lot of pressure from the inside out uh, to do more. Um, you know, we I, I ran this event last year, called it Open Data Speed Dating, and invited bureaucrats, uh, curators of open data, to come and uh, sit in a room and be engaged by anybody who would like to talk to them. And the, um, the engagement that was set up lasted about an hour and a half. It was five-minute speed dating rounds, as we called them. And the conversation was just, um, was just amazing. Uh, and it demonstrated the appetite, both on the bureaucracy side and on the citizen side, to really start to move mountains of data uh, towards a more constructive end. Um, you know, very much firm belief, both on the inside and the outside, that there's, uh, there's significant potential in um, open data nurtured business and social innovation that's attractive to both, um, you know, not just public organizations, not just public sector, but the private sector and those who operate in between and, and the NGO sector as well. Do you have any comments, Jacques, on the challenges where, to come back to the idea of uh, Richard's Lego blocks, if, if, if the Lego blocks belong in one jurisdiction but they're useful in another, how do you link the blocks? Yeah, interestingly enough, I think how do you link the blocks is is uh, is a question of uh, coming together, making the connections between the jurisdictions, and agreeing to context. And I'll I'll give you an example from the uh, from the event that I that I mentioned, the open data speed dating. I was trying to solicit uh, municipal governments to participate, and a few of them came to me and said, "We are there in a second. If you have the provincial transportation agency and the federal transportation agency there." And, um, you know, there was that desire to bring those levels of government together to talk about how they could make the context and the juxtaposition of data between those jurisdictions a lot more relevant. And I heard it from the people on the transportation side. I heard it on the health side. Um, a, a number of There's a number of threads that go vertically and uh, horizontally through these, uh, these jurisdictions that, that to, in my mind, it's the most, it's a thing that makes the opportunity at the public sector level most significant. So Nigel, I'd like to um, uh, ask you to comment. Um, if Richard Pietro uh, got off at Heathrow and uh, hired a motorbike and decided he would loop the country, uh, loop Great Britain uh, for some 20,000 kilometers. What? 18 laps. Yeah, 18 yeah. laps, yeah. <laughs> what uh, what do you think his re the reception might be? Do you think uh, what what at, at ground level across Britain? I know there's a lot of talk and a lot of enthousi enthusiasm in a range of forums and events and and innovative uh, startup organisations in London. But if you moved moved around the UK, uh, looking at at your local government space, looking at at business and industry outside of the city, what what would Richard find uh, touring around Britain? Uh, well, first of all, he'd find, of course, that he'd, he'd, uh, he'd have looped around quite a few times if he does that many miles. I mean, we're a small country in some sense, uh, but, you know, uh, we, we have all of the challenges you describe. Uh, you know, uh, 360 local governments, uh, uh, um, agencies, you know, um, that whole challenge between what's happening nationally and, and, and what's happening locally, where often the the, the most important, the hyper-local data is living that's relevant to individual citizens. That's a huge challenge. Um, it isn't just a London phenomenon, though. It's important to say that. And in the same way, people like Richard, I mean, the activists, 
the, the from the bottom up, the citizen-based work here is is, super, is supremely important in the UK. Um, there are regional uh, centres of uh, of excellence. In fact, the ODI is setting up nodes um, around the UK, regional nodes. Um, we're doing it actually ac across uh, uh, various countries now because we think there's a there's the idea. As many of the ideas can be very usefully cloned and templated elsewhere. But in the UK context, um, it is about, as uh, we heard earlier, it's about um, getting the incentives aligned as well. It's getting uh, the chief executives of local authorities to understand this isn't just a burden on them. This is actually something that will unlock value, will meet the requirements, the applications that can built can be good for their, for their kind of constituents. And that actually, in terms of um, saving money, efficiencies, uh, new kinds of services. Uh, the data that they are um, in possession of is supremely important. So I think that we would share huge amounts of common experience. Uh, and I think we're always looking for these new devices, these new ways to energize uh, uh, and, and educate. Bottom up, top down, middle out, as we've heard. Um, it's finding the compelling use cases. So there's nothing so convincing as a case which clearly has put data locally or nationally to great use. A good example, just recently I heard Trafford uh, in the Manchester area had used data on uh, public data on the incident of heart attacks to and journey times to hospitals to work out where to place its defibrillators. Now, just a very, very simple, people get that in a second, you know, so we need those kinds of examples with people like Richard pedaling and cycling around just as much as they can. Uh, one thing I'd like to sort of throw in there real quick for everybody, I don't actually consider myself as an activist. I really consider myself more as a fanboy of OpenGov and Open Data. I like to, I like to celebrate it and have fun with it. I, I, I will say, Richard, I was saying to Pia War uh, before we started, I, I think you're the only person I know who has the words Open Data painted along the side of a motorbike. <laughs> Well, like I said, I'm just, I'm like a Star Wars geek, but for OpenGov and Open Data, it's, it's fun. So let me ask this question then, if I can ask the room, we, we've got three countries here uh, looking at what's happening in the open data landscape. What's the story with community engagement? Is it in one sense too early? Uh, Nigel, you're, you're, the, the, I know that there's a lot of emphasis on demonstrating economic value on uh, on bringing uh, the commercial players to the table so you know there is sustainability around this kind of space but what's what what should the agenda be around community engagement let me ask each of you to, to comment or, or all of you what what are your perspectives well I mean uh, let me just say from the UK perspective I think um, as with companies, it's about constantly re-presenting uh, the opportunity. Uh, I, I, part of the challenge is, of course, for some of us who have been in this space for a long time, it seems self-evidently the case that this is the right thing to do. But there are so many communities who are in possession of real problems and the answer for which is the data that the uh, governments, both local and national, have that could help solve those problems, whether it's planning, environment, health, education. So it is just about um, looking at networks and communities and working out how we do engage. And I think there's a huge amount of work to do there still. In Canada, what's the experience, do you think? You know, I, I think um, this, this is Jacques. Uh, you know, as the, as the CIO of, uh, of Elections Canada, 
um, the whole civic engagement, community engagement uh, aspect of open data is of extreme interest to me. And, and I think it's, a, it's, an, an op, it's an opportunity, actually, to get more of the population uh, engaged in what's happening in government, interested in what's happening in government, and paying attention to what's happening in government. The nice thing about open data is it's not just one particular domain. Um, you know, it's, it's, not, uh, it's not just health. It's not just transport. It's not just agriculture. It's, it's something that is of interest to absolutely every single Canadian, every single individual in any country, for that matter, um, that could bring value to them. So, you know, I, I guess I'm, I'm approaching this as a, with, a, with a bit of a hidden agenda. Um, I kind of hope that in, in, in with having seen and helping people like Richard get the message across of the importance of open data and the doors that it can open to dialogue between citizenry and citizenry and government, um, that it does uh, um, bring more Canadians to the table. Because frankly, it's it's uh, it's of a concern to me that uh, there's great conversation happening, but I I still feel the bubble is a little bit too small. Um, you know, as Richard drives from city to city, I get the sense that the bubble is actually expanding, and there's more people getting involved. And I, I kind of hope it translates into much more citizen engagement on many fronts. John? So I, I think there's some interesting points here to explore. And one of those is what I des describe as the interesting factor. The challenge of open data is that we often produce it and people will look at it and go, that's interesting. And, yeah. and they'll move on to something else because we can get caught in this niche production of, of, of things generally. We produce something, it addresses a relatively small audience, it isn't particularly driving economic value or a major advantage, although clearly there are opportunities where it could, but it, it just sort of passes across the, the radar. The, the stream of information that people are exposed to means that some of the open data work is literally just saying, well, that's interesting and move on. Now, on the good side though, it hasn't been an enormous investment for us. We hardly pay Peter anything. Um, the, 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 we haven't gone to lots of cost in terms of hosting the data. We haven't really, in, in the sort of other the other things with which I deal, gone to a lot of expense in providing um, applications or, or other work programmatically in this sense. So we can afford, I think, to continue to do this and wait for some more of those opportunities to occur. But I really think that they're going to be seen as more important when we can describe the changes that they've made to things. The, the notion that, yes, there is real economic value in driving something. The, the, the example that, that does sound a bit trivial, the, the notion of being able to look at an app on your smartphone in the appliance store and see which, in a government-authorised sense, appliance uses less energy is something that I can see having an important connection with citizens. Mm. However, how often do you buy a washing machine? You know, if you get a good one, maybe every five years. We want more than that. We've got to drive or look for opportunities to do more of those things. Government historically isn't good at actually commercialising its data or, mm. or its information but nor does it have to be. We have to do what we can to get that information and hope that we'll see by examples of, of benefits that people will think maybe there is something to do with this and, and use that information more fully or, or to greater economic value. But, but it really is getting past this, that's interesting factor, yeah. that, that worries me. It's interesting, isn't it? Because if we look at the app store phenomenon that none of us would have predicted, you know, what, 
seven years ago or what, whatever. We're clearly looking at, at two levels uh, of demand. Uh, Nigel's talked quite a lot about the demand side and the importance of the demand side, but it seems to me that uh, in crude economic terms, we've got the wholesalers of data, if you like, but it's about creating the, you know, the, the perceived relevance to consumers who want those apps that talk about the uh, savings in, you know, the power savings or, you know, is, is my bus going to arrive on time? And uh, who vote. And who vote. Yeah. I exactly. Um, so, <laughs> Sorry, just quickly on that last question. Um, I think that the, the two things I wanted to address, um, the first one is that I think that um, citizen engagement and community engagement from government, um, it, there's two important things to, to look at. The first one is that there are so many opportunities and new challenges uh, today um, because you know the world moves so fast, the world is much more globalised, the, the um, think things, uh, for, for government to be able to respond to those things um, even better and more effectively and more efficiently, um, it, I think, I think, and this is a personal perspective, that it's important that we engage the skills, creativity and motivation of the entire of our society. Of, um, of citizens, of industry, of um, government agencies themselves, uh, so that we can actually start to deal with these problems more in a, in a more holistic sense, rather than everyone trying to solve their own problems in isolation. And I think open data helps um, address that. But um, more importantly, I guess, and comes to my second point, the role of government in society today, when citizens are more empowered than ever before, when they have more tools, more ability to solve their own problems than ever before, if governments able, are better able to, as part of their business as usual process, publish its data, um, then you start to get further towards this concept of government as a platform, yes. where government provides the building blocks um, in order, you know, for its own purposes and its own service delivery and its own um, function. But at the same time, people can, similar to Richard's concept about Lego, can start to build on top of those building blocks to to solve different problems in new ways and start to aggregate because. Trying to get government to, getting access to all data or all services from governments can be very tricky, but if you can find the data from different jurisdictions, you can find services from different jurisdictions, you can start to aggregate them into uh, holistic, citizen-centric delivery, um, which, which is more useful to people, because people don't care on the structure of government, and we're a little more complicated than a lot of uh, countries. We have three <laughs> layers of government, um, and, um, and there's some fantastic work happening in open data across a lot of jurisdictions in Australia. Um, but um, but citizens don't know or care where the data is stored. They just want to get access to all of it um, so that they can they can use it across across the different parts of government. Uh, so Pia touched on something that I, I'd like to remind people of whenever I'm talking about open data, and it's and it's the uh, potential impact of the global opportunity. We talk about uh, governments doing work with open data at the federal, you know, in our case, provincial and municipal level. You know, there are 300 federal governments, governments around the world, 3,000 provincial or state, 300,000 municipal jurisdictions. So think about the, uh, the benefit of even coming together and talking about standards and sharing the efforts that are going, uh, going on across jurisdictions. Um, there's, there's enormous um, opportunity cost to be saved there if there is much more, um, much more crosstalk with people that, um, you know, with organizations at the same level as you, above you, below you, whatever jurisdiction you're on, the, the opportunities for connecting those dots and, uh, and driving economic benefit from collaboration is immense. No, please, Richard. I'm just going to say one of the things that, that I'm doing the tour for is actually exactly on what Pia is hitting around is a lot of times the open data conversation is wrapped in an economic 
cost savings bow. But one of the things I like to say about at all the events for the Open Government Tour is that for the first time probably ever in civilization, people have a chance to customize their government, right? For the most part, government has traditionally been in that sort of one-size-fits-all model. Now we actually have a chance to customize our experience, customize our, our services, and, and that can't be forgotten. And that's, I think, the true sort of magic of open data and open government. Thanks, Richard. And I want to come back to one of the points, if we can, uh, uh, if I can ask, if I may, uh, Nigel uh, and Jacques and uh, John to, to, to comment. If we, if we pull back inside to uh, the challenges for government agencies, the horrible words standards were, were used a moment ago. Different agencies are at different levels of readiness around this stuff. So let me uh, just ask you to swap notes. I think quite a lot of people around the world would like to uh, try to get answers to a question of, it's, it's, it's quite a simple, practical day-to-day -day question, but quite a big one, about how do you encourage agencies to make little gradual steps, progressive improvements in the areas of data publishing and, and reuse, but without blocking uh, those that are still struggling, still finding it a little hard, who are less mature, uh, how do you how do you still enable them to engage? Oh, so my my experience on this is pretty practical. I've worked with the uh, before Elections Canada with the Canadian International Development Agency, and um, it, it we were fortunate that there was already uh, from the UK um, uh, the organization was working on a standard for publishing uh, project information on international development assistance, humanitarian assistance. So there was there was a target there. That was set. Now, it's probably a gold standard in terms of uh, implementing um, a standard, if indeed that's what you want to do, because they did acknowledge that um, different governments and different organizations were at different uh, spots in in the uh, in the stage and had different technical capabilities, even. Um, so that there was a lot of conversation around supporting out of the um, the IADI, the International Aid Transparency Initiative Technology Advisory Group, supporting organizations, uh, you know, based on where they were at that particular point in time. And and I can't say that we were terribly evolved because, you know, at a real ground level, anecdote level, um, we started having arguments about the definition of a project start date when we committed to sign up to uh, publish the information because um, we, we didn't have a standard internal definition for that. And, and that represents just a microcosm of some of the real challenges that govern, government organizations will have when they start to talk about publishing in a consistent format with relevant context. Actually, uh, Jack's uh, reference there to IAT is a really, really, really good one. It, it does seem to have really worked. Did, uh, it surfaced um, the fact that um, standards um, where they're kind of relatively broadly motivated can make a difference. You can die in a ditch over the tiniest differences that if you get too intense in standards. I mean, the trick with a standard is to be standard enough and not over-engineered. And, and generally, uh, big manuals, thousands of pages of standard definitions don't, you know, they can drive you insane and waste a lot of time. Uh, the genius of the web, the web protocols that Berners-Lee put forward were that they were relatively lightweight. They were just enough to get the connectivity. So when I look at standards, what we're trying to do in the UK is promote this idea of a national information infrastructure. And I think it's something we, we haven't touched on, but I think it's something we're going to start to see increasingly that, that 
open data assets are as critical to the success of nations going forward as any other piece of infrastructure. And in fact, it won't be just a matter of doing the minimum to chuck out a few data sets uh, that in future states and, uh, and governments will have to be uh, thinking about architecting more information that is of public and widespread use rather than less. Now, where do you join these information infrastructure components together? And, and the, the thing is to look for those few join points where a standard could really link across the data. And in the UK, we've been struggling with the idea of where we would do that in our geospatial data. So we have postcodes, that's one place to link them. Um, if we can just get all the other agencies in the UK to begin to use a web addressable representation of that segment of the country, we link data together. So your standards can sometimes be the selection of the right elements to connect information um, and then get some common cause around that. And, and the other point around that is not to not to let the perfect be the enemy of the good. I think that's, uh, and wherever you can, build those requirements into procurement. John. So uh, working in the Department of Finance, the central agency as I do, um, the way to make agencies do things is by government mandate and taking their budget away. Um, but... <laughs> But recognising that that always doesn't make them cooperative, um, there, there are some other things that we might want to do. I think Nigel's point about a light touch is, is perhaps the, the most important in this regard. If it can be seen that the effort to do something is only a little more than what you are doing now, then it's easy to persuade people to do it. If we can make, as we've done in data.gov.au, the, the production of APIs automated in a way that agencies can just give us the data and the rest of it happens, the step to give us the data isn't, an, isn't a very large one in those circumstances. If we construct a, a metadata arrangement that doesn't require things to be identified to the, down to the last detail, that, that, that perfect sort of arrangement, then they're more likely to do those things and more likely to recognise, well, if we just collected that information at the time we collected the data, we wouldn't have to do that easier either and it would be even easier. It's those incremental steps of making it easier, light touches that I think are more likely to drive uh, the, the sort of behaviour that, that we're seeking in this regard and to get published examples of where we've seen real economic value. I know there are, there are good reasons for transparency, but we have a very open government, a very open country as it is. We score highly on those ratings now. Um, it, it's not that argument to my mind. It's the notion of avoiding the waste of having potential economic value that we're not using that really is this strong argument. Because once we get that, it's, it's better for all of us. And that's, that's how I think we need to manage it. Thanks, John. Um, we're getting close to time. I'd, I'd, like, to, uh, I'd like to ask our uh, UK and Canadian guests to comment. Data.gov.au's had this amazing seven-fold increase in data sets over the last 12 months. It may not continue to escalate at quite that rate. Uh, P is nodding at the moment for our audience. But let me, let me ask you, what would be your advice to data.gov.au for its next 12 months? Jacques? I'd, you know, I'd give the same advice to data.gc.ca. I think um, continue to do what you're doing because, um, you know, similarly to what Pia just finished in, uh, in, in Australia, 
we had a, a code event, Canadian Open Data Experience, which uh, challenged and, and put out an open challenge to, um, to uh, technicians and policy and program people um, to make use of the data, to demonstrate, you know, to, to really drive value from it. I think somebody said earlier the, the, the true momentum will come when we start, when we start to demonstrate the, the success and the, uh, and the value of open data nurtured um, uh, innovation. So it, it is important to keep in touch with the public. It's important to keep the conversations going. Uh, it's important to uh, open the paths for citizenry to engage through, uh, through events, through uh, open government tours. Um, but it's also important to keep doing what they're doing because I think the government, you know, I think in Canada they're off on the right track. Um, you know, I was looking earlier this evening at the, uh, the list of projects that came out of GovHack. It's just incredible what people can do, and we just need to facilitate their capability to do that. Richard? For me, what I'd love to see from government jurisdictions that have any kind of open data portal is, one, change the language away from open data portals to open data playgrounds and create, and create tools for the public to take those data sets. Like the, the, anyone, not just the Uber expert, but anyone can take those open data sets and have fun with it, create, find trends, and just take it away from the elitist sort of, once again, that, that expert hands. Create those engagement tools with those data sets because just sort of throwing stuff out there does not mean people are going to use it. It's true. You do like your Lego blocks, don't you, uh, Richard? <laughs> As I, I'm a fanboy. I'm a fanboy. And finally, uh, Nigel, what would be your advice for the next 12 months? I think it's, um, um, you know, this, this is great stuff. Um, but I would say um, as you're putting stuff in there, check for rot. It, uh, check for the kind of quality. Um, it's always a bit of a depressing experience to go through any portal and realize the number of 404s or the number of errors or is the stuff really where you think it is. Um, think about the uh, whole process of making it discoverable on the web, not just presented through a portal. Uh, how can you get the data sets um, with, uh, so that they become uh, machine discoverable by, by search engines? So what does that look like? Um, and the final piece I would say is get to that pay place where government's consuming its own data from the portal. So bits of government discover the data is there and it drives those services. So one important point uh, I haven't really mentioned on the UK scene is the extent to which the open data agenda is trying to dovetail in with the uh, government digital services. So the uh, work that people like Mike Bracken and Liam Maxwell are doing in the UK, which is to take endless numbers of complex uh, government services and boil them down into much more accessible uh, 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 um, services that we as citizens can just consume and use. And uh, where you can make those services driven by the open data of government, you really do get this virtuous circle. And I guess a final point to, to, to Richard's point, it, make, it, make it playful. Make it something that high school kids can interact with just as much as... Uh, uh, as, as, as people with uh, PhDs in data science. Well, thank you, everyone. And, and I'm, I'm going to ask our uh, Australian colleagues, what's a snapshot of the, the next 12 months? What does the future look like for data.gov.au? 
I think we'll see an increasing connection with geospatial information, and I think that will be an important um, an important step forward. I think also um, Nigel's point about government using its own data through mm. data.gov.au is something we're just starting to see now in a range of areas, some quite nascent, but it's clear that that's driving in the right direction. So I think that's important as well. I think... Um, as keen as I am on, on, on GovHack, it will be good to see some of those things commercialised in some way. We've yes. seen that before in, in, a, in a little extent, but I think in, to a greater extent of seeing people actually driving benefit from, from, from this. I, I understand Richard's point um, about making it fun and, and things like that. Uh, that's nice. Sometimes that's not government's job. Um, our, our job, particularly uh, um, in the circumstances in which the government finds itself, is to drive this economic value. And examples that, that drive that are really going to make the change, to my mind. Thanks, John. Oh, I was No, I actually don't really have much. I can talk all, to, all sorts of nerdy stuff that would probably be a little too technical for this audience. But um, basically, keep an eye on the DataGov.au blog. Uh, we do monthly reports. Uh, we put up case studies. We've got an open data toolkit going up very soon, um, which is you know the single place for po uh, policy and guidance and, and case studies and information about open, big, and open, big linked and spatial data. And um, and we've got a lot of work coming to to extend the platform and e extend the the functionality for data users, and data publishers. And uh, who knows, maybe we'll get better at, at supporting non-data people at some point, but um, probably not in the very short term because right now we've got a lot of work to do around. Um, around that data extendability. Great. Thank, thanks, Pia. I'd like to thank you all for taking part. We've been talking this evening with Sir Nigel Shadbolt, with Jacques Mayeux, with Richard Pietro, and here in Australia with John Sheridan and Pia War. Thank you, everyone, for taking part. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, John. And just to uh, pick up on Pia's point, for our audience, uh, remember that links, downloads, relating to the cases, the people, the stories you've been hearing in this episode will be available online. So thanks very much for joining us. Uh, we look forward to your company next time. Bye for now.